Hey, this is Jeff. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited about this message and have some fresh conviction about uh, letting the Lord disciple us, letting Him correct us, um, and that being the uh, validation of our true sonship, um, as well as some other um, just challenges on pursuing the Lord in the secret place. Um, yeah, so I hope it blesses you. And uh, man, we, we just we love the Lord's presence. pray real quick. (laughs) Jesus, thank you. Thank you for you. We worship you. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. We thank you. Thank you for being a good father. Thank you for giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, God, tonight that you would open the eyes of our heart so that we can know the hope to which we are called. The spirit of wisdom and revelation, you freely given. You've freely given every spiritual blessing in all of heaven through your son's sacrifice. We thank you that we get to enjoy you for eternity. May your very presence teach us tonight. Amen. Um, I took some notes that I want to read real quick. There are... There are moments in worship, and we, we experienced it last week, um, but if you wonder why we worship for so long, um, there's a number of reasons why. Um, it's what heaven is doing all the time, so you might as well get used to it. <laughs> and Jesus prayed that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we want earth to look more like heaven, I think it's important that we do what heaven is doing, which is honoring Jesus and, and exalting Jesus, lifting high Jesus. And, and Jesus makes a few promises. He says, I, I'm enthroned on the praises of my people. He, he rests on, on the praises of his people. And he says, if you lift up my name, I will draw all men unto me. And so we're testing that theory out. Uh, but we're, we're wanting to do what heaven is doing. And, and we believe that Jesus is worthy of everything we could ever give him. Our time and our attention and our focus. And um, we've been practicing this in you know, Thursday nights, which is a, more of a corporate setting. And then Wednesday mornings are more of an intimate setting. We have prayer sets. We pretty much just do the same thing at prayer sets. And we, we basically, f- we follow a, a general structure, though. Um, if you haven't noticed, we always start, we try to always start with, like, Thanksgiving. Um, and we actually, we try and let the Holy Spirit lead us through the entire worship set or prayer set, whatever you want to call it. We start with Thanksgiving because it says, enter his uh, gates with Thanksgiving and then his courts with praise. So we start with thanking him. When you, thanks, when you thank Jesus, it's hard to be entitled uh, to anything, right? I mean, it's hard to look at yourself at all when you're thanking somebody. You're, you're acknowledging. Thanksgiving gets your eyes on him. And then naturally, the Holy Spirit moves us into praise because once you see Jesus for who he is, it's, it's organic to offer praises to him because he's so good. And then we, we move into adoration or worship, which is just ador- adoring Jesus and who he is, loving him, letting him love us and giving it back to him. And then we, after doing those things, we usually, you can usually hear him 
a little bit more clearer. And then we would call that intercession. And all intercession is is agreeing with what he's saying right now because he's always speaking. His nickname is the word. Um, and so we get, when you see him rightly <laughs> and you hear him clearly, then he releases what he's doing and then we have, um, we have marching orders after that. And so I, I believe we're learning how to build with God to where we don't do anything that he's not doing and only do what he's doing. So we have the corporate, you know, what we're doing tonight. We have Wednesday mornings, uh, but I want to challenge you guys. I, I wrote some notes down this past week about, like, personal pursuit of the Lord before I get into Hebrews 12. Um, I've been reading this book that talks about personal, like, your, your prayer closet time. So in order for this to work corporately, we kind of have to have an agreement to go after the Lord individually. Um, and I just, I, I thought this was so good, and I think it's going to give, give some context to why, what we, why we do what we do. And if you're challenged by pr- uh, worship that lasts longer than 20 minutes, um, good, you should be. And I want to give you some, I want to challenge you even further in your, in your prayer closet time. Um, 10 minutes a day with the Lord is good. 20 minutes a day, I- any time with the Lord you have is going to be great. And sometimes schedules don't allow for a lot of time. Um, but if you, your schedule shows what you value and, um, sometimes giving the Lord more time is the greatest way you can honor him. So this, this book I've been reading, it talks about entering into the Lord's presence and like, um, this guy shares his, um, how he does it, what his prayer closet looks like. And I want to, it's challenged me a lot. And I've been, I've been applying it to my life, and it's been phenomenal. And it gave some language as well to what happened last week. Uh, if you weren't here, I'll talk about that a little bit. But he says, I, I first go, the first stage, I call it deprivation. And it's recognition of our personal depravity. It's impossible for us to make anything happen when we're alone with God. You cannot make him do anything. Our efforts are actually useless. So Surrender. Give up, relax, give yourself and to him, cast yourself upon him. So the, when you go into your time with the Lord, the first thing you should have a revelation on is like, I can't do anything. I, I, you know, with that, I can't do a thing to make him do anything. So, I mean, nine times out of 10 growing up, I, I would go, the first thing I would say when I'd go to the Lord is, Lord, would you do this? Would you do that? Would you do this? Would you do that? Instead, I, I, I want to challenge you guys to recognize you can't, there's no point of bringing an agenda to the Lord. Second stage would be concentration. So be still, focus all your attention on God and away from other things. Uh, be single-minded, look at him. And then that moves you into adoration. As the soul recognizes its poverty and focuses itself in stillness, then and only then can it offer itself itself up as a complete offering to God. Adoration is incomplete until our souls are still. Oftentimes we're looking at the Lord while simultaneously worried about other things. We're split in two. There's no such thing as dualistic adoration. This is why men cannot touch him because Holy Spirit fire only falls on on a whole sacrifice. Partial attentiveness will never receive the touch of God. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29 13. David prayed that God would give him an undivided heart in Psalm 86, 11. 
Adoration is the preoccupation of the soul with the beauty of the Lord. It is, it is the purest form of seeking God. It is both the enjoyment and the practice of our union with God. Does that make sense? So after dep- deprivation, concentration, adoration, and then you have manifestation. As we turn our attention to him, it will take us like a river takes a yielded body. And I didn't know this, but Isaiah thirty-three twenty-one basically says, oars, like how you row a boat, are forbidden in the river of God. Complete yieldedness to the Lord. As you adore him, it's, it's inevitable that he manifests himself. Uh, there's, I think the book of John, I mean, the Father and I will make our home in you and we will manifest ourselves to you. The next stage, and this is the one I wanted to touch on, is, is resignation. I thought this was so good, and I haven't had language for this for the longest time. This is the fermentation of the sweetness of God's presence into wine. Fermentation takes time, a specific kind of time, time resigned to his presence. Last week we had this, uh, we had this moment we didn't, no one preached. We had this moment where like uh, the Lord just poured himself out and we didn't move on from it. And I think it was, I think it was um, resignation. As humans, we have a natural itch to move on, to accomplish something and desire for progress or momentum, but this robs us. Resignation is lingering with him. A simple acquiescence of oneself to the nothingness of God. It feels like nothing is happening. The natural man is so fixed on activity that the nothingness of simple resignation, resignation to God's presence and still adoration is an irritation to him. We're addicted to activity and we live by movement. Therefore, the still sweet nothingness of God will always be nonsense to our, hum, our natural human nature. But the presence of God is the happening. The stage of resigning to his presence will determine if you want anything other than just him. Don't try to understand, just be. Resignation with God is about total contentment with God himself. Psalm 27 is a, is a psalm we've been meditating on for a couple weeks. David prays, one thing I ask for, one thing I seek after, to live my life in the sweetness of his presence. His presence is it. I wanted to share, I just wanted to share that with you guys. It gave me some language this past week of like, we've been going after like some corporate times in his presence and our prayer sets, but like individually, I want to challenge you. What's your, what's your prayer closet time look like with the Lord? Are you pursuing him like this? Just you. I want to invite you into that. All right. Hebrews 12. We good? We get at that little side note there. So that's why we that's why we worship so long. It is just his presence is the only thing worth anything. All right, Hebrews twelve, verse one. As for us, we have all these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. Hebrews eleven was the, the hall of fame for. Jesus. Um, I would encourage you to read that on your own if you haven't yet. But Hebrews 12 is moving on. He says, as for us, we have all these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. This implies not just the, the, the people that were mentioned in Hebrews 11, but thousands and thousands upon generations of people who are in the kingdom. So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us. 
and the sin we so easily fall into, then we will be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out before us. We look, Hebrews 2, or 12.2, we look away from the natural realm we fasten our gaze onto Jesus who, was birthed, who, who birthed faith within us and who, who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. This verse has a lot in it. We look to Jesus his example was this. His heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his. He endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits at the right hand of God. We don't have to endure the cross. How many of you know that? Praise God. We don't have to endure the cross or be humiliated in that way. And now we're actually seated with him in the heavenlies. He's taken us up. He's invited us in through the broken body and the blood of himself. Everything we, we endure should pale in comparison to being seated with him. Meaning the joy of knowing him outweighs every, anything and everything we could possibly even go through. In fact, we're more empowered to endure shame and persecution because we're seated with him at all times. What a privilege it is to share in the sufferings of Jesus while being with him, the one who suffered the most. This is why, this is why Peter asked to be crucified upside down. He wanted to know Jesus better. That's insane. <laughs> this is why Christians in the Middle East are so filled with joy because they know Jesus in his suffering and what they go through, even what they go through, being burned alive and burning oil all over them pales in comparison to what Jesus and the shame and humiliation that Jesus suffered because Jesus absorbed the entire curse of humanity into his body says in scripture that he became unrecognizable to God so that we could become recognizable to God. What was lost in us, the image of God, Jesus absorbs the curse and he gives back the image of God. He restores all things. So we, no matter what we go through, we're always seated with him right now. Like we, we're, we're, we're ruling and reigning on the earth for a little bit of time. We're co-reigning with Christ in the heavens. Verse three, so consider carefully, consider carefully how Jesus faced such intense opposition from sinners who opposed their own souls so that you won't become worn down and cave in, <laughs> cave in under life's pressures. I'm gonna read that again. Consider carefully how Jesus faced such intense opposition from sinners who opposed their own souls so that you won't become worn down and cave in under life's pressures. Why? Why should we consider how Jesus faced intense opposition from sinners? So that, we, so that we won't become worn down and cave in during life's pressures. He is the shepherd who endured. Whereas sheep, we are his sheep walking side by side with him going through all of life's pressures. And when we look at the shepherd, we know. We just know we're okay. There's a peace. There's a peace that he gives that no one else can give. The world cannot give. You can find it. You cannot find it anywhere else. There's a peace with, that comes with knowing him that destroys chaos. Chaos in your minds, chaos in your hearts. It's the peace of walking with him. After all, verse four, after all, you have not yet reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. That'd be crazy, wouldn't it? To sweat blood. Jesus sweat blood. 
It's wild. It, it's almost like a dig, too. It's like, it's like, consider how Jesus faced such opposition so that you won't become worn down and cave in under, under life's pressures. After all, you haven't sweat blood, have you? <laughs> and, and have you not, for, sorry, and have you forgotten his encouraging words spoken to you as his children? He said, my child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God or get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself, it proves you are his delightful child. Fully embrace God's correction as part of your training, for he is doing what any loving father does for his children. For who has, has ever heard of a child who never has to be corrected? Any parents? Or Cade? <laughs> Cade, you got two, two grown kids now. <laughs> we all should welcome God's discipline as the, listen to this, we all should welcome God's discipline as the validation of authentic sonship. For if we have never once endured his correction, it, it only proves we are strangers and not sons, or orphans and not sons. And it is, isn't it true that we respect our earthly fathers even though they corrected us and disciplined us? Then we should demonstrate an even greater respect for God, our spiritual father, as we submit to his life-giving discipline. Our parents corrected us for the short time of our childhood as, of our childhood, as it seemed good to them. But God corrects us throughout our lives for our own good, giving us an invitation to share his holiness. So God's correction leads to his holiness. Now all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time, yet later it will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. A few notes on this little section here, this fun section about discipline. If God's correction was for our punishment or due to, due to sins, that would violate the cross. Does that make sense? If it was to punish us, or, or to deal with our sins, that would violate the cross because Jesus died once and for all. God dealt with every sin, past, present, future on the cross. He dealt fully with our punishment on the cross. Therefore, God's correction is only motivated by his love. And because he sees you through an eternal uh, lens, uh, an eternal perspective, he sees you through the finished work of the cross. So he already sees your perfection through Jesus, so anytime he disciplines you, it's because you've stepped outside of who he's called you to be. And he says, wow, son, like, son I love you, I'm your father, but I see you as, as this perfected, uh, I see you outside of time through the finished work of my son, you're not acting like that, let me put you back in line. God's correction is only motivated by his love. When we don't embrace God's discipline, it's usually because we're thinking like an orphan. An orphan views any discipline from a father as rejection. Orphans live in starvation of, of approval. They think that discipline means disapproval. Therefore, discipline is rejection. Orphans avoid rejection at all costs because their deepest need is acceptance. God's discipline, but God's discipline is the validation of authentic sonship. It's the stamp of sonship if you're, if you're being disciplined. Praise God if you're being disciplined. That means you're a child of his. Receiving God's discipline with joy is evidence of your adoption. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you have a hard time accepting God's discipline because you're having a hard time seeing him rightly as a good father. 
But if we see him rightly, we see that he is love, he is good, empowering us to welcome discipline from the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. We were born again into his kingdom, and he sees from an eternal perspective. If God is for us, we need to trust that his discipline is positioning us to move into his destiny for us. God's discipline produces a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is given through Christ. Discipline happens when we live outside of who we are in Christ. And it brings us into righteousness that Christ died to give us. He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's an unfair exchange, really, if you think about it. When we get born again and adopted into righteousness, we begin training through renewing our minds with what God says. We live life, and when we step outside of righteousness, conviction comes through the Holy Spirit. We repent, we turn around, we get back on the road of righteousness, being right with God. Discipline from God yields a harvest of being right with him in every part of who we are. You guys with me? If God's discipline is not yielding a harvest of righteousness, it's either because we're acting like an orphan and avoiding it altogether, or because we aren't seeing him rightly, not trusting in his discipline. We're basically saying, I know better than you in our avoidance of his discipline. God's discipline brings a harvest of, of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Greek word here for peaceful implies wholeness. God's discipline brings you into wholeness. How do I know if the Lord is correcting me? That's a, a good question, right? Like, how, how do you know if you're being corrected or disciplined by the Lord? Uh, well, I, I ultimately, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a few questions and indicators that the Lord always disciplines to bring us closer. If you're being drawn in by, by the Lord and it's painful uh, because maybe you don't want to give up some things or, or whatnot, you're being pruned. But if, if you're being drawn closer, the Lord is disciplining. The Lord's motivation is always love. A couple questions to ask. Is this love or is this fear speaking? Is this love or is this fear speaking? Fear speaking. Is there shame attached to this? Shame means uh, there's something, something wrong with me. Is there shame attached to this? The Lord will never shame you. However, uh, there could be shame attached to genuine correction. The devil doesn't want us welcoming God's correction into our lives because he knows that it leads us closer to God. You think he doesn't know this? So when shame is attached, we recognize that it's never from God, but rather a distraction to discourage, it, to discourage us from getting closer to God and welcoming his discipline in our life. The Lord is not the author of evil. The Lord didn't hurt people so that Jesus could heal them. If that were the case, then Jesus would have been going against God's will when he healed people. Verse 14. In every relationship, be swift to choose peace over competition and run swiftly towards holiness. For those who are not, are not holy will not see the Lord. Watch over each other to make sure that no one misses the revelation of God's grace. Make sure no one lives with a root of bitterness sprouting within them which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. In every relationship, choose peace over competition. What does this mean? It means I'm going to choose wholeness over getting what I think I deserve. I have a choice to act like a son or an, orf or an orphan. An orphan is only aware of what he or she does not have. 
they need validation, they, they see uh, profit in relationships, then they work for love. A son pursues holiness, welcomes correction from the father, lives from the delight of the father, being filled with everything they need, and it, a, son does, a son or daughter doesn't feel the need to be right, doesn't need to work for love. I can only choose peace over competition when I know who I am through sonship. If I'm unstable in sonship, everyone else is a threat to me because I'm not doing enough to earn my place at the table. Why is it so important to run towards holiness? Those who are not holy will not see the Lord if we do not live holy. What a grave mistake this is when we live like orphans. We run from God's discipline, leaving holiness behind, and an, an entire generation misses out on seeing the Lord because we didn't welcome God's discipline in our life. Verse 15. Oh, yeah, I read that one, but I'll read it again. Watch over each other to make sure that no one misses the revelation of God's grace. It's huge. And make sure no one lives with the root of bitterness sprouting within them, which will only cause trouble and poison the hearts of many. So watch over one another to make sure no one misses the revelation of God's grace. Growing up, I didn't really know what grace was. I thought it was like, ah, I, I could just mess up and we're all good. Grace, 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 grace. Woo, everybody loves grace, right? Uh, God's grace is actually favor and it's lavished on you according to Ephesians. God's grace empowers you to live the truth that he's called you to. When discipline comes, it comes to call you up higher. And if you're being called higher, there's always grace, which is the favor or empowerment, to walk that out. We hold one another accountable to God's empowering grace that calls each of us up. How, how many of you feel unqualified for what you're called for? That's what grace is for. You're, you're not the one that's gonna be doing it. When, when God speaks a word over you, he, for example, let's use Jesus, right? Jesus gets baptized, comes out of the water, the voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Right after that, what happened? He went, he was led by the spirit into the wilderness, right? What did the devil tempt him on? The first thing the devil said every time he tempted him was, if you are the son of God. What did God already say right before that? This is my son. So when the Lord speaks a word over you that calls you up higher into a place that you cannot survive in your own gifting, talents, and strength, if he speaks that over you, there's always the grace lavished on you according to Ephesians that, that's the empowerment from heaven to live out the, what he is speaking. Because with his voice comes anointing, it comes grace, it comes empowerment. So it says here in verse 15, Watch over one another to make sure no one misses the revelation of God's grace. Why? In a community of spirit-filled believers, we hear the voice, we hear what God is saying, and we we start to see the destiny over each one of your life, and we and we get to partner with what God is doing, and we can say, "Wow, this is what the Lord's saying over you." Here's your encouragement. I'm going to fan into flame uh, what the Lord is saying in your life. Does that make sense? When God calls you higher, there's always grace that empowers you to walk it out. And it says here in Hebrews 12, watch over one another to make sure no one misses this revelation. <laughs> when we, here's what happens when we miss the revelation of God's grace. Ready? When we miss the revelation of God's grace or his empowerment, we think God is asking too much of us. What happens when that happens? Bitterness. 
We get bitter. Bitterness takes root, and with every assignment comes grace for that assignment. God's discipline comes because we're living outside of who we are in him. If we don't see him rightly, we'll run from that discipline. Then we'll take up with an offense with God for being a mean God or asking too much of us. God, don't you know I can't do any of this? Why did you call me to do this? Blah, blah, blah. Then we take up an offense And we get bitter that he's asking too much of us. But when God's discipline call, uh, comes to call us up higher, if our identity is secure and we see him rightly, we welcome that discipline, knowing that he sees us through eternity and it's for the purpose of our good. We welcome. And then when, when he disciplines us, we know that it's because he sees way up here and, and we're invited to come up with him. We welcome that grace that comes with the assignment to call us higher because we know we can't do it on our own anyway. He lives in us. He lives in me. If he says something, it is good, it is true, and he will see it through. That was was rhyme. I didn't even mean to do that. (laughs) Bitterness um, is not allowed. Uh, Offense cannot be allowed. And we're gonna deal with it because it's the number way to block God's discipline. If I become entitled, it's because I've not considered Jesus. Way back in verse three, if, if I am entitled to anything at all, it's because I've not considered Jesus and what he went through. If I don't welcome his correction, it's because I'm being an orphan and I've missed a revelation of sonship. If I don't recognize the revelation of his grace, I'm not seeing him rightly as a good father. We need to hold one another accountable to these things so that others will actually see the Lord. These things push us closer and closer to holiness. Holiness is that weird thing where where God says, you are holy and blameless, but there's always gonna be growing into that. Bitterness is rooted in orphanhood. Orphanhood is a victim mentality where everybody but you is responsible for how you feel. Bitterness and offense are cancers uh, because they recruit others to justify I, I, like, I recruit others to justify how I feel bringing more and more people into the camp of orphanhood. Um, and I want to take a minute to just say here in this place we're ministering to the Lord constantly. We cannot minister to him as orphans because orphans run from correction. Orphans don't step into grace and despise holiness, seeing themselves as less than. We have to have a revelation of adoption that we are sons welcoming his correction because we know that his correction pushes us closer to him and it's all done in love. Verse 16, be careful that no one among you lives in immorality, becoming careless about God's blessings like Esau who traded away his right as the firstborn for a simple meal. And we know that later on when he wanted to inherit his father's blessing, he was turned away, even though he begged for it with bitter tears, for it was too late then to repent. I'm going to read, I think I'm going to read the rest, uh, the rest of Hebrews 12, if you guys are good with that. For we are not coming, this is such a good section, guys. For we are not coming as Moses did to a physical mountain with its burning fire, thick clouds of darkness and gloom and with a raging whirlwind. How many of you know this is Mount Sinai when the law was given? Like, isn't that wild? Like, Moses came to a mountain with, with a burning fire, thick clouds of darkness and gloom, and with a raging whirlwind. He says here, we're not coming to that. We are not those who are being warned by the jarring blast of a trumpet and the, and the thundering voice, the fearful voice that they begged to be silenced. They couldn't handle God's command that said, if so much as an animal approaches the mountain, it is to be stoned to death. 
The astounding phenomena that Moses uh, witnessed caused him to shudder with fear and he could only say, I am trembling in terror. By contrast, we have already come near to God. The same God, by the way, we have come near to God in a totally different realm, the Zion realm. For we have entered the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. We have joined the festal gathering of myriads of angels in their joyous celebration. And as members of the church of the firstborn, all our names have been legally registered as citizens of heaven. And we have come before God who judges all and who lives among the spirit the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect in his eyes. And we have come to Jesus who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat, blood that continues to speak from heaven, forgiveness, a better message than Abel's blood that cries from the earth, justice. Make very sure that you never refuse to listen to God when he speaks, for the God who, speak, who spoke on earth from Sinai is the same God who now speaks from heaven. Those who heard him speak his living word on earth found nowhere to hide. So what chance is there for us to escape if we turn our backs on God and refuse to hear his warnings as he speaks from heaven? The earth was rocked at the sound of his voice from the mountain. But now he has promised once and for all I will not shake I will, I will not only shake the systems of the world but also the unseen powers in the heavenly realm. Now this phrase once and for all clearly indicates the final removal of things that are shaking, that is, the old order, so only what is unshakable will remain. Since we are receiving our rights to an unshakable kingdom, we should be extremely thankful and offer God the purest worship that delights his heart as we lay down our lives in absolute surrender, filled with awe, for our God is a holy, devouring fire. Holy cow. <laughs> fire. <laughs> I want to I show you guys the, the contrast between um, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. So Mount Sinai was when the law was given. Um, Mount Zion is, so Mount Sinai was marked by fear and terror. Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Hold on, let me go back a second. So our relationship with God is not modeled after Israel's experience on Mount Sinai. We come to God's other mountain, Zion, the name of the hill upon which Jerusalem sits. So the law came to Sinai, the cross came to Zion. There was no city at Mount Sinai, it was out in the desolate desert. Sinai was associated with Egypt, Zion is associated with heaven. There were a few angels that delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, yet Mount Zion has innumerable company of angels. What God did at Mount Sinai was mainly for Israel. What God gave at Mount Zion is for all, and it spans all the redeemed, both through the church and the general assembly, all together. Mount Zion doesn't do away with God as judge of all, not at all. So it, it, it doesn't do away with God as judge. Mount Zion doesn't. Rather, the work Jesus did on Mount Zion satisfies the justice of God, bringing forth the spirits of just men made perfect. Mount Sinai was all about an old covenant based on earning and deserving. Mount Zion is based on a new covenant with Jesus, the mediator, based on believing and receiving. I love that the blood of Abel cried, justice must be satisfied, bring vengeance. But the blood of Jesus cried, justice has been satisfied, bring mercy. So the, the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount, Zion, Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was marked by fear and terror. Mount Zion was a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai is in the desert. Mount Zion is in the city of the living God. Mount 
Sinai spoke of earthly things, but Mount Zion speaks of heavenly things. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, an, an innumerable company is invited to draw near. Mount Sinai was characterized by guilty men in fear, and Mount Zion features just, features just men made perfect. At Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator. At Mount Zion, Jesus is the mediator. Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai you say him enough, you start sounding like. Mount Sinai brought an old covenant which was ratified by the blood of animals. Mount Zion brought a new covenant which is ratified by the blood of the precious son. Mount Sinai was all about exclusion, keeping people away from the mountain, but Mount Zion is all about invitation. Mount Zion is all about the law. Mount Sinai is all about the law. Mount Zion is all about grace. I want to make a few things clear um, like what we're being invited to here in this place and what we're doing. We, we've been invited in by the Lord to make him our inheritance. The Lord has to be our leader. He's our shepherd, prophet, apostle, evangelist, and teacher. He's our portion and our prize, empowering us to be a priesthood unto him, consisting of sons and daughters who welcome his correction, knowing fully that it leads us into our destiny. We hold one another accountable to ministering to him. In environments of ministering to the Lord, you cannot hide from him. It's why people either love, either love this or hate this. Eventually, you will see him for who he is, and he will shape you into who he made you to be, producing a harvest of holiness, peace, righteousness in you because you've been drawn into adoption by his spirit, and you can't stand to live without his correction and direction. And the, the, the amazing thing is, by this Others will see God. God has been looking for a people fully devoted to him and to him alone that allow him to lead. So we say, God, come and take your place. This is your idea. This is all for you. Purge us of any inkling of orphanhood in our thinking. Correct us, disciple us, discipline, discipline us. Shape us into who you've made us to be. And people outside of holiness will see him because we've said yes to laying down our lives, our rights, our opinions, our desires, for the one thing that matters, we get him. We get him. Psalm 27, one thing I desire, one thing I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days and look upon his beauty. There's a transaction that happens when you see him. It's, it's you, you become what you behold. There's this really fascinating, weird story in the Old Testament. Was it Jacob and the sheep? That we're getting it on, breeding. Yeah, was it Jacob? <laughs> There's this really, it, it's, sorry. It's this really fascinating story, okay? Um, Jacob is shepherding his father-in-law's flock of goats. Is it goats or sheep? Goats. It was goats, wasn't it? And um, the father-in-law was like, you can take all the spotted and speckled, you know, goats. So Jacob puts this stick out that, that looks spotted and speckled outward by where they were breeding or feeding. And they, the goats would look at this and they actually pro reproduced more spotted and speckled goats. And so then the father-in-law was like, wait, let's switch it up, take the other kind. And he did the same thing. The, the point is what you look at, you reproduce more of in yourself. What you behold, you become. So to see him and behold him, to look on his to, to look at his face and behold his beauty all your days, you are, that is, that is the process of letting God father you. 
you will become who he says you are as you look at him. It's really that simple. The gospel is really simple. You die, you get born into his life, and then you just look at him for the rest of your life. And then he disciplines you, he corrects you, he shapes you. His presence is manifested, and other people are drawn to him. That's the, that's the gospel, that's it. That's why we're on the earth. And we get to do this for a little bit of time, then we do it forever, for the rest of our lives. <laughs> this needs to be our heart cry. Anything else, and people, when, uh, people who need to see Jesus won't see him. Nothing we try is gonna convince anybody. It, it's, as far as I'm concerned, you might have different opinions, but I, I don't even care about trying anything else other than looking at him because he's the one that does everything. Anything else is not right. I have no rights in his gospel because I've considered Jesus. If you consider Jesus, you realize that you have no rights as well, and that's the most freeing thing in the world to say, I don't have any rights. Because he becomes your everything. He's your defender. He's the author and finisher of your faith. He is your shepherd. He is your prophet. He is everything to you. So a few questions and then we'll wrap up. Are you considering Jesus? Are you walking in sonship? Are you seeing him rightly? Are you catching a revelation of his grace? You on uh, Mount Zion or are you on Mount Sinai? All this is for him, unto him. People need to see him. Jesus, we thank you for you. We thank you, thank you for your discipline, your correction. You're such a good father. We say yes to everything you're doing. And we give up our right to understand. It's so freeing that I don't have a right to understand you. It's so freeing that I can just enjoy you. And you take me through chaos, you take me through hell, and I still get to enjoy you. And I'm becoming more like you without even trying, just by looking at you. Thank you, Lord, for the invitation to us all to just behold you, to, to be seated at your feet, to adore you, to, to sit in stillness, to let your presence to let the wine of your presence be spilled out and let it ferment, Lord. We just thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord, would you give us a spirit of conviction that we have to press in, Lord. There's always more, there's always more, there's always more. There's always more. And we're only satisfied by you, only satisfied by you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Jesus, we love you, we bless you. We worship you, we adore you. Convict our hearts tonight, Lord, to welcome your, your correction, to welcome your discipline, because it means that we're your children. We thank you, amen. You are sent.